From the heart of the Midwest in Bloomington, Indiana, welcome to One More Cold Call, an Indiana University Maurer School of Law alumni podcast. Each week, over a casual cup of coffee, Dean Parrish meets with accomplished alumni from around the world and from all walks of life. Over a season of episodes, we hear from law school alumni who have unique stories to tell about the unfolding of their professional lives and the lessons they've learned along the way. start each podcast off with a little bit of IU Maurer Law School trivia and history. Appropriate for this interview, did you know that the law school has a special program for students interested in criminal law careers? Named after the late Craig Bradley and funded with a gift from Joe and Mary Hoffman, the program provides exceptional opportunities for about 15 students a year interested in criminal law and procedure. From the time they are selected, Bradley Fellows benefit from extracurricular activities and an exclusive externship program. There's also a strong global component, including partnerships with faculty and law schools in Poland. Now you know. Today I get to speak with Tim Morrison. Tim is a 1974 graduate of the law school. He's double IU. He also graduated with his bachelor's in political science from Indiana University. Tim retired from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Indianapolis in 2011 after 23 years of service. He litigated violent crime, firearms, public corruption, white collar and national security cases. When he retired in 2011, he was first assistant U.S. attorney, and he had served as interim leader of the office three times during his 23 years, briefly in 1993, from 2000 to 2001, and again for more than three years, from 2007 to 2010. Tim started in the office in 1988 after working as a chief deputy prosecutor in Monroe County and a supervisory deputy prosecutor in the Marion County Prosecutor's Office. After stepping down from the U.S. Attorney's Office, Tim joined us as a distinguished adjunct professor, where for almost a decade, he taught a range of criminal law and procedure courses and helped spearhead the Bradley Fellows Program, including overseeing the unique Bradley Externship Program. Hey, Tim, so great to have you join us on One More Call Call. Thanks for uh, taking the time. You're quite welcome. Good to be here. Tim, you started law school in the fall of 1971. Uh, can you set the scene? What prompted you to attend law school? And what do you remember from that first year back in, in 1971? Well, the scene is a lot different now than it was back then. Uh, back then, it was a time of conflict. And, and uh, uh, there were some rough times on campus, a lot of uh, uncertainty. The Vietnam War was roaring. Um, all those things were, were going on. Um, and even though we have our own set of problems now, it was just a different feel, uh, particularly um, on campus. I think I really wanted to be a lawyer since probably junior high, um, and it was probably not motivated on the right reasons. Um, I wanted to be a lawyer because I thought my skill as a, a speaker and a debater um, and maybe even an actor uh, would really translate well to the courtroom. And my prime motivation was I wanted to get into the courtroom. I really didn't have any intense interest in any area of, of substance. Um, so uh, it was sort of a natural progression that I would come to law school. Um, and, and that's what uh, got me uh, here. Um, what I remember from the first year is terror. Uh, terror because it was vastly different than anything I'd had. Um, as a, I was a first generation college student, neither one of my parents had gone to college didn't have any answer uncles who were lawyers, didn't have any relatives who were lawyers, had really no you know, familial contact uh, with the legal profession, which, uh, you know, I, I think that's more important now than, than I used to think it was. You, if you don't have a direct contact, 
you need to talk to people who've been there who know you, uh, then that would be very helpful. I didn't have any of that. So I'm in there in an area in, in, in which uh, we've got a lot of really, really bright people. Um, and, and I'm sort of like uh, swimming upstream because I'm not familiar with what's going on. Yeah, no, and, and back then they were tough, right? The uh, Not like today where it's rare that they kick people out. My memory is in the late 60s, early 70s there, quite a few people didn't make it through the first year. Is that is that your memory or mine? That, that is my memory. And in fact, that's one of the things that I've said, having the opportunity to having taught here a little bit and watched how you all are working it now that differs dramatically from the 1970s. In the 1970s, they used the faculty to weed people out. Um, and, and they were going to, you know, the faculty members were just bouncing people right and left. Uh, I had two people that I knew that, that flunked out um, and, and they were, uh, they just didn't make it. And they were, they were bright people. Um, the, the, the problem was that uh, um, th that put the faculty in a sort of an adversarial role with the, with the student. And now it's much more of a coaching kind of context. I, I put it, I hate to use the athletic context, but it, it's made pretty much like somebody else selects the team. They said, these are our players, you know, go make them good. And that's that, that's the mission that the faculty is given. I think that's a good one. Yeah, I like that. I like that analogy, too, or that comparison. You know, looking back, I, were there particular faculty that stood out in your mind as, as somebody you remember fondly or, or perhaps somebody that terrorized you? I, it was tough back then. It was tough. I, I only remember the ones that I, I really liked. And, and one of them terrorized me, but I really liked. It was Roger Dworkin. I had Roger Dworkin for criminal law, and he was the most prepared, uh, I mean, down to the question teacher that I, I'd ever had. And, and uh, so each class of 50 minutes or however was just jam-packed. There wasn't a wasted minute. Uh, and, and he was like pushing, pushing, pushing all the time. Uh, but I really thought that I, um, I learned a lot from him. Uh, and, and, you know, it was, he was kind of trying to mold us in the way the lawyers think. He was really bright. The other person that I recall is Patrick Bode. I had him for con law. Uh, and, and I tell people that uh, my memory of Patrick Law does not come from Maurer. It comes from the, the uh, bar review course that he taught in con law afterwards. Um, and so most of the faculty were teaching the con law parts of it. He came in at 7 p.m. with a three by five note card, which just had a couple of words scribbled on it. And he talked for three hours including extensive quotation from cases where we didn't know where he was getting that from, but he was just so fluent and so wonderful and so good. So here these people are, are, we're relatively poor, we're paying for this bar review. At the end of the course, he gets a standing ovation. <laughs> he was amazing. I'll always remember that. Yeah, but Bode was legendary, yeah. And I thought I did pretty well on the kind of law uh, question on the bar exam as a result of that. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, as you say, Professor Bode was was is well liked by many. Uh, Professor Dworkin, um, we see him now. Well, with COVID, it's been a little more delayed, but we have a reception up in Seattle each year, and he joins us. Uh, he joins us each year for that reception, and he's doing well. It's uh, it's it's funny. He um, uh, he volunteers and and uh, it, it fairly extensively at the Seattle Zoo. And he gives tours to uh, elementary school kids. And every year he talks about this at the uh, reception. And there's always some alum that asks him whether he does a, a, a tough Socratic method with the seven-year-olds because, because he was tougher back in the day. So. Yeah, no, but, but he was very good. Very good. Yeah, no, he's a fabulous, fabulous person, wonderful faculty member. 
Hey, did you know when you started law school uh, that you would have a career as a prosecutor? You said you wanted to get in the classroom, but but what inspired you for uh, you know a, for a career of public service and, and and being in the prosecutor's office for so long? I, I wish I could tell you that that was a lifelong dream uh, that I was going to be a prosecutor from the time I was ten. Um, that's not the case. Um, in fact, uh, I wanted to be a, a, a trial lawyer for a law firm. I, I wanted to work for a law firm, but be in in the in the courtroom which of course we all know everybody wants to do. So that, that, that makes it incredibly competitive. And at that time, the, the, uh, the market for lawyers was, was pretty narrow. Um, so there, there wasn't a lot of that out of there. So I'm working along and I'm getting to be my third year and I've got a couple of prospects, but nothing that's really hot. And I'm beginning to, because I also had a commitment to the military that I, I had, to, I was a uh, uh, lieutenant in the army, and, and uh, I had gotten deferred for law school, but I had a potential um, term that I had had to do that way. Uh, so I, I'm I'm kind of looking around, and believe it or not, as a student, I was associated with student legal services at its inception. And the individual who we hired to be uh, the the head lawyer at at, uh, at student legal services knew this guy that was looking for somebody to run his political campaign. And I'd done a few campaigns as, as a student. And, and so he said, well, you ought to talk to this guy. So I did. And I, I went and helped him. And he was running for Monroe County prosecutor. And he won while I was off in the military. And when I came back in February of 1974, five, fe February 1975, I had a job waiting for me in city court as a result of my help with that. So and I thought, well, this is going to be good. I'm, I'll learn from some lawyers. Um, I'll, I'll take this, I'll try to, to peddle this to some local law firms and maybe some around the area because we like the area so much um, and see if I can't make it that way. And so I worked for about a, a, a 10 months, maybe that way to the end of the year. And around that time, I told my wife, I think there's been a change of plans. I'm hooked. I like this. Uh, and that's what I did. And, and uh, although I had one, one little, uh, a spiel of private practice for about 10 months uh, in between jobs, that was it. Uh, you know, and I've always stuck with it. And, and you know, that's something that, that just hit me. So I tell law students, you know, don't close doors because, if, you know, don't get, get in your box where you think, well, I can only do this because something's going to fly out there and hit you and you're going to go, wow, I like this. That's what happened to me. You know, I'm surprised when I started, uh, you know, meeting with alums, how common that story is that the, the non-traditional, the unexpected, it becomes the more sort of uh, uh, traditional path. Well, you ended up with a fabulous career, whether you planned it or not. And you served, as I said, for 23 years in the U.S. Attorney's Office. How did you make that transition? How did you get your start in the U.S. Attorney's? And, uh, and can you describe one or two of your most memorable cases uh, during your time there? Well, uh, I... <laughs> I would like to tell you that I stood out so dramatically that it was I was an obvious choice, um, but that's not the case. Um, I stood out, but not dramatically more than, than other people, but I happened to be working for the right person at the right time. Um, this was uh, Deborah Daniels, who was uh, uh, the governor's sister, and in her own right, she was a assistant attorney general and U.S. attorney here in the Southern District of Indiana, uh, and I was working for her. And she came in, uh, and I was the her second in command. She had a higher job at the at the uh, 
uh, Marion County Prosecutor's Office, but I was supervising the sex crimes units, which reported to her. And as you can imagine, they were very sensitive and headline, uh, you know, the newspapers could do you or not do you, uh, you know, depending upon what, what happened. And so I was pretty trusted by her and, and I, I produced results and she came in. I remember to this day, she closed the door, sat down and she said, now nobody knows this, but I'm going to be appointed U.S. attorney in January. And he, okay, will, will you come with me as my first assistant? And I told her, yeah, let me think about that for a moment. Yes. <laughs> and that's how I got there. And then literally uh, I stayed in, you know, through a number of administrations and uh, uh, pr probably because I'm, uh, I'm not as, I'm not complicated and I'm not disloyal and do they do all those kinds of things. Well, I'm not sure it was because I was a brilliant lawyer. I wasn't a bad lawyer, but I don't think it was that brilliant. Well, I, it's, it says a lot that you were asked to join her. That That's a great story. Is Are there some cases that particularly stand out during your career that were you know particularly exciting or things that you you look back on fondly? Yeah, I, I, there are a number of them, uh, a number of places I went. Uh, I, I ended up uh, at the State Department uh, in a conference over some evidence. Don't, don't try to get evidence out of the State Department. It's not, not a good thing. Uh, the CIA, which was actually the, a really cool place to be because they don't allow cell phones in there. So people are actually talking to each other in the cafeteria. Uh, you, you know, you can't go off campus to eat lunch. So you have to eat the, there, there on the CIA. And people are actually talking with each other because there's no cell phones allowed, no electronics allowed. Uh, the Pentagon, which actually was of all of the government agencies, the, the, it seemed to me to be the most like the ones I dealt with in the state. Um, but that was all over a national security case, which involved a, a uh, Palestinian uh, truck driver uh, who uh, was trying to negotiate with Saddam Hussein uh, to, to reveal the names of American uh, assets inside of Baghdad before the invasion. Now, number one, we don't know whether he had those names or whether those names existed. He may have been trying to deal with Saddam Hussein, you know, in bad faith and just take his money and run, which we thought, boy, that's pretty bad. Uh, but 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 in any event, um, he was he got in the country illegally, he forged his passports and, and his uh, he was a citizen and he forged his citizen's documents. So it was a very very complicated case. He was a very smart man, spoke uh, Russian. Uh, Arabic uh, and English all pretty well. So we had translators for all those uh, with the FBI. So it was very, very complicicated. Uh, ended up convicting him and, and, and away he went. Uh, but uh, that was a very, very complicated case. The other one that's more more than I re recall is it's more normal, I guess, would be um, all this it's kind of kind of odd. We had a sitting prosecutor in the state of Indiana who, was behind on his support payments and arranged with a local defense lawyer to secure money from the defense lawyer to make those payments in exchange for throwing OWI cases. And we actually sent in undercover state police people, arrested them, uh, and then they would go around the jail going like, I'm a traveling salesman. I can't lose my license. Who do I talk to? And I go, well, you got to talk to this lawyer because he's he 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 gets a miracles like you know miracles happen when people are represented by him. And so the, the, the they they actually went to the lawyer, paid him the money that, that he, he demanded for the, and then he handed them a signed uh, dismissal by the prosecutor right there. Bang. Oh wow. 
yeah, it was it was it was pretty amazing. So, um, but that, that's what happened. And so uh, this guy was is while he was in office, while he was in office, that happened. So, yeah, that was tried in front of Judge Barker. He went to prison too. That's back nineteen eighty nine, probably eighteen nine eighty nine ninety. Wow, what a scene! <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I mean, it was so brazen, and we were all just shaken by it. Uh, you know, by, by what he was doing, and then he was putting pressure on other players within the, the system, you know, not to talk, not to cooperate with the FBI, you know, not to, not to answer questions. It was pretty terrifying. So uh, that was one where I, I didn't feel personally like I was under the gun because he went in my county, but, uh, but, but it was for, for those, those people who were helping us, we felt pretty bad. Yeah. Did, did that end up being a jury trial or just a... Oh yeah. Oh yeah. He, he went all the way. So I got to cross-examine him. That was fun. <laughs> what a career you know you served as interim u.s attorney three times and i i don't think i've that's extraordinary i don't think i've ever heard anybody uh, serve in that position that many times how did that come about well uh there is a people appreciate now there's a more complicated system of actings and it's all codified but back in the day um, that, that's an evolution it used to be that the judges just picked so uh, that was the, the statute. The, the judges, the, it would either be the chief judge of the district or the judges in Bonk would decide who the U.S. attorney was going to be for that period of time before the Justice Department made an appointment. So I got it one way with the chief judge. I got it another way with, uh, with, with the in Bonk. And then I got the third way uh, with the department um, uh, per, per rule. And what happens is that if, the, if you stay in the rule for a long enough period of time, then you become an interim U.S. attorney, and I've, I've got my nice little thing in seal there. The other two times are not the the, the department doesn't appoint you, so I don't don't have anything for that. But I've got my little plaque on the wall that says I was a real one. Wow! <laughs> but, but that's but part of it is just the, the the courts. You don't really appreciate, but the courts have a real interest in not putting bozos in the in in the office uh, because it just messes up the entire. Um, even if you never did anything, if you kept the machinery running um, smoothly, um, that, that's really good. If you don't keep the machinery run, uh, running, you create problems on every level of the district court system. No, I, I, I think I, I think students as a starting off as prosecutors, let alone at the highest levels there, but even at the starting levels, don't realize how much is a repeat player. You get to know the judges and how critical you doing your job uh, well is is important for them to doing their job well as too. I, uh, yes, and what I, what I tell them is that uh, if it's worth it, you definitely make a, a judge angry by taking a stand on something. If it's not worth it, don't let your ego get in the way, you know, back out of there and live to fight another day for something that's more important than your ego. Uh, and and, and it's, a, it's a real, you're, you're exactly right though, that, that relationship with the judges and with the clerks, mm -hmm. you know, that, that's another place we went always is the clerk's office. We, we tried to know, how are we doing this that's going to upset you? Because if you have the clerks uh, against you, you're, you're not in good shape either. It's a, it's a much more complicated system than, than people understand. Yeah, I think also it kind of ties into something we've been emphasizing so much recently, which is, you know, protecting and nurturing your professional reputation. And that idea that, you know, it's not just how good you are as a lawyer or how smart you are. It's that relationship building over time. That allows you to succeed or not succeed, and that seems particularly strong in this in the context of a federal prosecution of, of you know 
building that reputation over time as somebody who can be trusted, who's somebody who's got good judgment, somebody that the judges can rely on. Well, it may seem trite, uh, and, and, but but if you lose your your credibility, your word, you've lost everything. You, you're not going to get it back with fancy uh, behavior in the courtroom that's brilliant or citing some case that no one else has found. If, if you if you've lost your your credibility, it, it's over. And, and that's why I, I I tell students, you know, you've got to be upfront with the court all the time. Um, you can oppose them. You can say this is the wrong decision, all that kind of thing. But you've got to be straight with them because once you're not, you're you're lost. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really good advice. You know, you stepped down from the U.S. Attorney's Office in 2011, and then you you served as almost a decade as a distinguished adjunct professor for us. And um, how did you get reconnected to law school and particularly the Bradley Fellows Program? How did that happen? Well, first of all, I, I was hooked up with the Department of Criminal Justice through uh, one of my uh, associates in the U.S. Attorney's Office. He was doing some adjunct teaching down there, and they needed somebody to teach criminal law and criminal procedure uh, under, to undergraduates. And so I was doing that and I felt pretty comfortable doing that. Uh, I, you know, it was fun. Uh, I had the classes about uh, 70, 70 students and, and, and they were pretty full and, and uh, they were rolling through there and I was doing, doing fine. And that went uh, uh, maybe a year. And then um, Professor Bradley got, became ill and, and people knew he wasn't going to be able to come back in that following August. And so I got a call from Julia Lambert. That's how the negotiation started. Julia Lambert, who was Pat Bode's wife, um, she called and, and said, and I, I, I was resistant. I said, oh, I can't do that. I said, so, so those students will sniff me out in a heartbeat, you know? And, and she goes, no, no, she, she, she's telling me, she said, you've got a lot of credibility as a practicing lawyer. And I'm going, well, I, I said, I'm gonna be feeling uh, uh, the, the pinch up there. But uh, I, I got convinced, and so for two years until they got a, a, a real replacement uh, to do the criminal law, I was teaching criminal law to first-year law students. And I will tell you that during those two years, it was, I was terrified. But uh, I, it was the most fulfilling thing I, I've ever had. And I tell people, they said, well, if you had your career to do over, you know, what would you do? I'd start teaching earlier. Uh, it's, it's more fulfilling um, uh, and there, there's less, uh, what was it? L l less uh, flack out there. Um, you know, the, the one bad thing about practicing is that there's so many angles coming at you. Um, you know, and in the law school, you really try to develop a relationship with your students, and and you know, try to inspire them and push them and and, and help them. And uh, to me, that was just much more fulfilling. So um, that's that, that's how I got there. And then uh, uh, as part of that, um, Joe Hoffman took me under his wing and was trying to get me through that first year criminal law section. And, and so Hoffman then uh, got me hooked into the Bradley Fellows program. And, you know, I, uh, I've always felt when I started teaching the same way, I don't know if you feel this way, but in practice, sometimes it takes um, well months, years to try to figure out if you've had an impact. And I remember I, I had a case that I started when I started practice and when I left practice almost six years later, it was still going on. In, in classes, I feel like I could tell whether I've had an impact usually within the hour or two hours. If I have a good day, I feel like, wow, I, I, I conveyed some knowledge there. I made a difference. And if I had a bad day, I know that too. I, uh, and that sort of immediate feedback I find is, is helpful. Well, I actually had a student in one of my uh, criminal uh, uh, procedure uh, uh, classes, the criminal procedure investigations, a uh, former student, she's now a, a deputy public defender someplace. 
And she called me up and she said, you know, I'm going through your outline here. And I got this case and she's describing it to me. And uh, she said, I, I, I just need you to explain to me again how, how this goes. And I'm going like, well, you know, you're in Southern Indiana and that's a pretty sophisticated uh, um, argument to be using. What you're describing to me sounds like constructive possession. So why don't you argue that there's no constructive possession, go over to the deputy prosecutor, say you want a trial, say you're gonna defend on that and see what happens. So about two hours later, I get a call back and she goes, you can never guess where I'm at. I, I said, where? She said, I'm over, I'm walking toward the jail with a dismissal motion in my hand. <laughs> and I, I went, I went outstanding. I said, whoops, I'm on the wrong side. You know, I'm, I'm cheering for my student then. So, so that's, a, yeah, I agree with you hundred percent. It's a, you get a lot of instantaneous feedback. And you had a lot of students. I, uh, as Dean, I feel guilty because we, 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 we had you teaching a lot of classes there over the last, uh, last five or six years. I, uh, um, maybe Julia didn't realize how much we were going to utilize you over the next decade when she first called you. Well, it was great fun. So I, I got no, I got no complaints. It was, well, it was great fun, but it was a, it was a real challenge, but it wasn't, you know, I, somebody said, uh, well, what's harder being a trial lawyer or, or being a teacher? I go, well, you know, it's different things, actually. So, you know, it's, it's hard to hard to, to say one's tougher than the other. They just make produce uh, different challenges. No, I think I think that's right. Well, we're grateful for all all you did for our students. And uh, I, I, I assume you know this, but I know students uh, incredibly grateful for all the time you spent with them and giving them giving them their insights. And that story you just told is a great way about how your sort of uh, your influence and, and advice continues even after they've graduated. Yeah, yeah, no, I've, I've got, I'm, I'm in contact with a, what I would consider to be a surprising number of students. And, and, and I, I will say that's something that differs from, uh, from, from when I was a student. We, we would never, never reach out to, uh, to faculty like that. Just wouldn't do it. Uh, that, that, unless you were like one of the real top people, you wouldn't do that. Yeah, I think that's one of the nice things that has changed, as you described, I think, really well early on, is it's much more of a coaching role. And and I think the students and the faculty sort of take on a different sort of professional relationship than that sort of standoffish, uh, yeah. you know, never, never talk to them. And I, I think it makes, I think that's also a little unique for Bloomington, not, not entirely, but uh, being a smaller community, I think it, it lends itself to building these stronger faculty student, uh, you know, uh, relationships than, than let's say schools and urban centers. Well, coaches can be, uh, you know, quite critical, uh, but they are always supportive. You know, they, they, you always feel like they're, you know, they're working with you, you know, not not at you. Are there other differences you remember between when you were a student and, and when you returned back as a faculty member? Um, other things that sort of stru struck you as different in those those intervening 30 plus years? Women. Hmm. Women struck me as being different. When I was in school, there was not a woman instructor in the place. Not one. I never had a woman uh, a law school professor, law school instructor, just did not have it. Um, there were only 25 women in my class, yeah. 25. Um, and the, the way that they were treated, uh, particularly because uh, I, I think it, my year was the first year that they really dramatically pumped up to, to 25. Uh, and, and that was considered to be a lot of women in the class at the time. It was dramatically different. Um, you know, we, we had... A, a law professor who was, uh, he was guest, he was not from here, but, but uh, he would call on women in class and refer to them as blondie, you know, uh, blondie. And, uh, you know, that wouldn't be done today, couldn't be done today. Um, but back then, we thought, you know, many of us thought, well, that's not really, 
And that's not really a way to, to, to do that, but you could definitely see the, the disparity in treatment. So that's how I would, you know, I, I see, uh, you know, women law professors here, they're standard uh, women in, in uh, 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 law administration, you know, women in the classroom, um, all that kind of thing. And it's just much different and, and much better. Um, it was really kind of a closed society back then. And as, as closed as it still has a tendency to be, it's much more open when you and women. Plus, you see that in the courtroom. When I, when I first was uh, was out in practice, there were no women judges. Um, you know, now I think there's as many women district court judges in the Southern District as there are men. And the first one was Sarah Evans Barker in 1984. So, you know, think about that. Think about the dramatic changes that have gone on over that time. Yeah, we, I uh, recently uh, had the privilege of interviewing Clarin Nardi Riddle, uh, who was from your your time and and she was talking about the stark contrasts and and uh, we were just we just had an event up at uh, well this was a, a month or so ago with uh, with the Indiana Supreme Court honoring some of our trailblazers people like Sue Shields who was the first federal magistrate uh, judge in Indiana and first appellate uh, female judge and and uh, and then Loretta Rush and and uh, Linda Chesham and they were talking about how much things have changed dramatically over the last. Uh, you know, last few decades. Uh, I think three out of the last five years, we've had more women than men in the incoming class. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, um, the, they're, they're um, and you can see that they're better prepared. The ones that are coming in are, are um, um, not as intimidated. Um, you know, it's not something that's like brand new, but I, I really had some, uh, you know, uh, Clary Nardi Real was in my class and, and I knew who she was. I didn't, I didn't really, I think I spoke to her a few times, but I didn't really have any uh, friendship with her or anything. But, you know, of course, you know, now, now I wish I had. Um, you know, it's, it's, I tell people, if, if I had one thing to say to you as a, as, a, 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 as a law grad, it'd be like, be friends with everybody. Because the people that you are, you know, talking to now are going to be the movers and shakers uh, later. And you may actually... Um, have business with somebody, um, you know, later on. So uh, you, you need to develop relationships right now uh, and, and try to maintain those throughout your professional career. That's great advice. I think law students don't realize how small the legal community is when you get down to it. And, uh, and you think, you know, you've got thousands of lawyers out there, but it turns out you interact with your classmates quite a bit. And, and you do. Yeah, you do. You see, you see a lot of them. Um, so yeah, no, I, 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 that was, now, that that's that is uh, that's something that I, I would would do, and I've seen many of them that way. Uh, the other thing is you don't realize the power of it, of it all um, until you've been in judges' offices throughout the state. And being what what I what, where I where I worked in my position, I was always going to visit judges. And I told somebody, I said, if you want to if you want to be in connection with a with a judge in the state of Indiana. You need to do something with IU basketball because the paraphernalia is everywhere. I mean, it's throughout every judge's office. There's pictures. There's, you know, all kinds of stuff. And then you begin to think, wow, um, you know, it, it's really not that large of a world uh, after all. That all these people would be so fascinated by this one thing, and, and uh, that's very similar to how they're uh, they're connected to people too. Um, you know, that because you're right. There's just not that many, not that many out there. Now, that's great advice, both for incoming students and also for new law graduates. If you were to look back, is there 
Is there any courses that you'd recommend students take in their law school career that you wish you had taken or a course that you took that you're, that you're, you're glad that you took? You know, the, they really had very little in the way of courtroom practice, um, you know, the, back when I was a student. In fact, I, I think they were, they were only uh, a couple of seminars for upper class students that you would, um, that, that you would be able to take. So, so much of it was theoretical, uh, that it was kind of overpowering to people and, and maybe a little bit boring. Somebody said, it's nice to know like what a lawyer does in a day, um, you know, and, and how, how they go to the courthouse to file something or do, do it electronically. Uh, just all those little mundane things make people feel, um, you know, more connected to what they're doing. I think the law school's done a pretty good job at having, you know, individuals uh, talk about uh, practice issues, and uh, you, you get to hear local lawyers talk about uh, trial advocacy, and uh, you do uh, direct and cross examinations of people. Any of that practical stuff that you can get is um, is really a benefit. And we had none of it. Uh, there, there was just no way that you could get that. I basically learned um, my trial skills uh, from other lawyers whom I emulated and watched after I had graduated. Um, and I, I think the, the law school is doing a pretty good job at as much as you can um, at, at trying to integrate um, actual practice, uh, practice skills with, uh, um, with the substantive law. And the, the more you can do that, the more you can get of that, I think you're a step ahead. Yeah, no, I think, I think it's one of the big changes in legal education, at least since the 70s, but even more recently. You know, I know you oversaw the Bradley's externs. Those that externship opportunity didn't exist in the same way as it as it does today. And then, um, you know, that we have those intercession courses where students can take a one week class. We have uh, Judge Pryor come up and teach a course on criminal, uh, you know, practice. And Judge Rodriguez comes and does a, court, a class on courtroom procedures. And that's in addition to the traditional sort of uh, trial advocacy practice classes. And as you say, it just makes a big difference in in confidence level when the first day you go into court not to have to figure out just the basics of, of what you need to do. Well, as, as an, uh, an intern or extern uh, back, back in the 1970s, I went to uh, Brazil County, uh, Brazil, Indiana, Clay County, and I was working in the prosecutor's office there. And all I did was the arraignments, which are nothing. Um, you know, it doesn't take anything to do an arraignment except a pencil so that you can write down what happened. But the government doesn't really have any role in the arraignments, um, but 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 you do that. Um, it's amazing how much better I felt, how prepared I felt, just by sitting there watching the judge, watching the lawyers, talking to various people afterwards. But I had no clue, um, you know that that was not something that was afforded me in law school. But it, yet it really really helped me. I, I guess it was because I, I was an extern, but uh, but it's still it, it, you could have. It was not incorporated within the curriculum itself. It's only that I happened to have that job uh, that, that I got there. But I felt, you know, much more connected and and uh, than, than I did I did without it. Yeah, well, I think that's great great advice to try to get those practical experiences. Well, Tim, I'm uh, I'm mindful of time. Thank you for spending uh, spending your morning with us on uh, one more cold call. And uh, if I didn't say it, I just want to emphasize thank you so much for all you've done for our students over the last decade. Uh, I know you said it was a rewarding experience for you, but you made the law school a better place uh, teaching for us, and we really appreciate all your contributions. Thank you very much. Yeah. Well, it's been an honor to have you on uh, on the podcast. Uh, stay well and take care. Okay. 
And thanks to our listeners for joining us too. Don't forget to follow us on social media at both at Austin Parish and at IU Mauer Law on Twitter and Facebook. And we hope you make plans to come back to Bloomington soon. Each year, over a thousand alumni come back to campus, judging moot court or mock trial, serving as mentors, or helping our students in other ways. We hope you will too. And when you do, please reach out. Until the next time, this is One More Cold Call, an IU Mauer School of Law alumni podcast.